The instinct not to breathe underwater is so strong that it overcomes the agony of running out of air. No matter how desperate a drowning person is, he or she doesn't inhale until that person is on the verge of losing consciousness. At that point, there's so much carbon dioxide in the blood and so little oxygen, the chemical sensors and the brain trigger an involuntary breath, whether the person is underwater or not. That's called the breakpoint. Laboratory experiments have shown that the breakpoint comes after an average of 87 seconds. At that point, our bodies tell us that holding our breath is killing us and that breathing might not kill us, so we might as well just breathe in. When the first involuntary breath occurs, most people are still conscious. For approximately 10% of people, water or anything touching the vocal cords triggers an immediate contraction of the muscles around the larynx and affects the central nervous system. Their body judges that something in the voice box is more of a threat than low oxygen levels in the blood and acts accordingly by closing. This is called a laryngospasm. It's so powerful that it overcomes the breathing reflex and eventually suffocates a person. A person with this type of spasm drowns without any water in their lungs. The other 90% of people, when they breathe in, water floods the lungs and ends the transfer of oxygen to blood. A person would be half-conscious because of oxygen depletion, and the person would be in no position to fight their way back up to the surface. Their life is essentially over. Maybe all that remains are feelings of hopelessness, maybe a sense of panic, last thoughts of their loved ones or maybe even a sense of betrayal if the one they loved was the one holding them underwater. This is the case of Shelley Tyre and David Swain. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime, and I'm your host, Sandy. Welcome aboard. Today's case was suggested to me by Ben Payne. The victim in today's case, Shelley Tyre, was a good friend of Ben's family, and David Swain taught Ben how to dive. Ben is local to Jamestown, Rhode Island, where David and his wife Shelley lived. Ben added some local flair to the story. I was lucky enough to be able to interview Ben and his wife Rebecca while they live and travel on their boat in the Caribbean. Ben and Rebecca host a YouTube channel called Major Pain Sailing in Scuba. They are scuba enthusiasts, and their expertise was able to add some valuable insight to this case. Jamestown, Rhode Island is situated almost entirely on Canaanicut Island. I hear some of you yelling at me because I said that wrong, probably. It's the largest island in Narragansett Bay. It's home to just over 5,000 residents and is one of the wealthiest towns in America. It's known for its gorgeous preserved historic architecture, which dates back to the 18th century. And it's on this island that David Swain lived and operated a small dive shop, and I would call it an adventure shop. David was a divorced father of two teenagers. He was charming and had big dreams and plans for his business. He loved the ocean and everything to do with it. In addition to a small dive business, David would take people kayaking to earn money. It was on one of these kayak trips or tours that he met Shelley Tyre. While kayaking, a lightning storm rolled through. David took charge attaching his kayak to hers and leading them out of the storm. Shelley was impressed by David's courage and leadership. He soon moved into her home. 
and in October of 1993, they were married. Shelley came from a wealthy family in comparison to David. She also had a good job as the beloved principal of prestigious Thayer Academy, which is a private middle school in Massachusetts. One thing was made clear about their early relationship and marriage, and that was that David married up financially when he married Shelley. Her family was concerned enough about their planned marriage that they encouraged Shelley to have David sign a prenuptial agreement. It would state that David would get none of Shelley's money if they were to get a divorce. David was agreeable to this, and so the marriage went on. David's family said he never really cared about having money and was comfortable with or without it. He had two children from a previous marriage, and Shelley had none of her own. She loved children and loved his kids like they were her own. Over the next six years, David built his business from a small room in his home into a lavish scuba shop, which had a large storefront, an indoor pool, and two complete apartments above the business that the couple could rent out to guests as extra income. Shelley's income paid the family bills, while David put all his money from the business back into the business to help it grow, and grow it did. Shelley's family also helped back David's business. From the outside looking in, things were good for the couple, but close friends and family began to hear that things weren't so good. David and Shelley didn't get to spend much time together. Shelley had a long commute to work every day. She drove over an hour and 15 minutes from Rhode Island to Massachusetts. David would often work weekends and evenings teaching people scuba and taking them on dives. The time apart couldn't have been easy on the couple's relationship. In March 1999, Dave and Shelley went on vacation to the British Virgin Islands. They traveled with friends named Christian and Bernice Thwaites. The Thwaites had a nine-year-old son that came along, but David and Shelley had left their children at home. The two couples had rented a sailboat that was outfitted with equipment. It would allow them to make several dives while on vacation. David was obviously very experienced, but in all honesty, Shelley was too. They were used to diving in cold, murky water in and around Rhode Island. Sometimes in the murky conditions, they couldn't see more than a few feet away. They'd dove plenty of wrecks, and they'd seen plenty of ocean life, including sharks. In other words, there wasn't much that they hadn't experienced underwater. Nevertheless, they were excited to head to the clear waters of the Caribbean, where it's warm in comparison to home. They were going to dive several spots and sites off the coast of Tortola. Part of the reason this case was so intriguing to me was because I was born in Tortola. My brother was born there as well. My father was a charter captain for a couple years before my parents opened a small restaurant on Cooper Island, all while living aboard their boat. As an adult, I've dove some of the same wrecks that Shelley and David dove in 1999. They dove once or twice a day and would go in pairs so that the Thwaites' son wouldn't be left alone on the yacht at any time. On March 12th, it was the last full day of their vacation, and they decided to dive a site called the Twin Tugs. On that last fateful dive, something went terribly and mysteriously wrong. Shelley would die, and Tortola police would want to talk to David. When they entered the water that morning, Shelley and David dove first. According to David, they swam a course that they all agreed upon and arrived at the wreck just minutes after entering the water. At this point, they went their separate ways 
as we always did. Those are David's words, not mine. He had no idea how Shelley died because he wasn't with her. At least that's what he told the authorities and eventually would tell Shelley's parents via phone call. When her body was released to him a couple days later, he flew home knowing that he would have to go visit his wife's parents in person and explain exactly what happened. Shelley's father, Richard, would ask David why he left her alone during the dive, and David wouldn't have a good reason as to why. Richard asked him about the buddy system. It's one of the top rules for scuba diving. Even non-divers know it. You always stay with your buddy. But David's response was, How many times have you broken the speed limit? Every diver at one time or another is diving alone. David explained that Shelley liked to plant herself at a reef and count fish, while he preferred to go explore the wrecks and take pictures. According to Ben and Rebecca, the couple I interviewed for this episode, they agreed, you're always supposed to stay with your buddy. That being said, Rebecca's father was a dive instructor and would often dive the same sites David and his students would dive. She mentioned that her father would sometimes bring up some of David's clients. Typically, a dive instructor would stay down, making sure that all the clients return to the surface safely before the instructor rises. It sounds like leaving divers to fend for themselves was a fairly common occurrence for David. David tried to explain to her parents that Shelley had done solo dives before and tried to explain what could have happened to her. He said that something as small as a headache could have caused Shelley to lose control underwater and make a mistake. When divers panic, they've been known to rip off their equipment. He thought this must be what happened with Shelley. In fact, Shelley had panicked on previous dives. She recorded her feelings in her dive log, which David gave to her parents, but that information didn't seem to help them ease their pain. David understood that because they weren't divers, it was going to be a very foreign concept to them. But it was even more foreign to Shelley's parents how unemotional and matter-of-fact David seemed to be about her death. It wasn't just Shelley's parents who were concerned. The talk around Jamestown, at Shelley's school and amongst friends, was about how David was doing without Shelley. One of the teachers at the academy said he didn't feel right about what was going on. He felt that David was almost happy at a time when he should have been in mourning. The teacher said there wasn't any solemnity to what David was saying, and it bothered many of the people at the school's memorial service for Shelley. When Shelley's father asked David, in anger, how come you're not showing any grief? How come you're not showing anything a husband shows for a wife who has died? David's response was, because I was 16 years old and standing there when my brother beat my mother to death. You heard that right. According to David, he grew up in an abusive household and he lost his mother through violence. According to the Providence Journal in Rhode Island, David was born in Louisville and had a difficult life growing up. His father, who had a history of violence, left his family when David was a young child. His mother worked at Pillsbury to support the family. They would later leave Jeffersonville and move to Golden Valley, Minnesota, and in 1975, David would move to Rhode Island, where he started his own family. But shortly after Easter, in April of 1976, David learned that his mother back in Minnesota was missing. He would later find out that she'd been brutally beaten to death and that his younger brother would be convicted of her murder. 
David's mother, Betty, had met with friends for a dinner party, but she failed to show up for work the next day, and her friends reported her missing several days later. She was found tied up in the back seat of her station wagon, about five miles from her home. An autopsy revealed that she had been struck seven times in the back of her head, shattering her skull. The investigation turned to David's brother, Richard, who was 19 at the time. When his mother was still missing, Richard had given little information to police and said he didn't know the make or model of his mother's car. Police found traces of blood throughout the house and garage and on the knees of Richard's jeans. Richard at first said he knew nothing about his mother's death, but told investigators at one point that he would play pranks on his mother and that perhaps he had hit his mother on the head and dropped her from the roof. He would be convicted by a jury and sentenced to life in prison. Shelley's family was extremely upset when they found out that David had lied about seeing his mother beaten to death. He wasn't there. They had given him some slack about his strange demeanor after Shelley's death because of the claims he had made of seeing his mother die. David's daughter Jennifer would explain her father's jumbled facts and quirky behavior as part of a mental disorder. She said the family always speculated that seeing Shelley dead brought back horrible memories of things that happened as a child. This trauma would explain his strange behavior and his inability to remember certain things that happened after Shelley's death. David did go see a therapist named Paul Block. They would have therapy sessions over 30 times between 2003 and 2004. According to Block, David exhibited no violent tendencies, but he was quoted as saying that given David's history, if he experienced a tragic loss that was overly painful to him, he would likely present it in a cold and detached way that can lead to some misimpressions by people. David could come across as not caring and unaffected by things when in fact he is trying to avoid and not remember them. A disorder like this could include memory loss. After Shelley died, David went crazy spending money. He would eventually spend close to a million dollars in funds he derived from Shelley's estate before probate court put a hold on it. David also charged on at least 16 accounts, several hundred thousand dollars, in addition to what he spent as part of the cash flow from his dive shop called Ocean State Scuba. He began spending this money visibly. He made pricey renovations to his dive shop took a lot of vacations, cruises, and trips. He even began dating. According to David's friends, despite appearances, David was grieving. One of the scuba instructors hired by David said that for a while, David wasn't sure he'd ever be able to get back into the water. In the year or two after Shelley's death, David wasn't able to say the things to Shelley's parents that they needed to hear. His actions made them more angry and more suspicious. They began to throw the word murder around. There were too many things that they felt couldn't be explained about Shelley's death. Her family hired an attorney and sent him and a team of experts to Tortola in search of the answers that David couldn't seem to give. Over the course of several months, the team uncovered evidence that they believed proved that David was lying. They believed that the facts of this case were much, much much more than just a simple scuba diving accident. In 2006, the Tires and their legal team would find David responsible for her death. 
they would go to court where a civil jury would award the Tyre family $3.5 million. In the midst of this trial, David Swain would file for bankruptcy. After this ruling, the British Virgin Islands would officially accuse David of murder. His trial would begin in 2009. According to British Virgin Islands court documents, the facts of Shelley's death are as follows. On March 12, 1999, David Swain, Shelley Tyre, and their friends the Thwaites were enjoying their last day aboard the sailing vessel, the Caribbean Soul. Shortly after 12.30 p.m., David and Shelley dove into the twin wrecks, which comprised the wrecks of two old tugboats. They're located off of Cooper Island and are a popular underwater attraction there. The Thwaites family were left on board the vessel, and there were no other divers in the vicinity at the time. About 30 minutes after entering the water, David returned to the Caribbean Soul alone. Mr. Thwaites then entered the water. At the stern side or back of the wreck, he found Shelley's fin embedded by its blade into the sand with its heel portion up and the heel strap irregularly stretched below the sole. As he came around the stern of the wreck, he saw Shelley lying on her back with her face pointing upwards. Her regulator was out of her mouth and she wasn't wearing her diving mask. She was free from any entanglements. Mr. Thwaites quickly brought Shelley to the surface and called for help. He then began CPR while still swimming. David then came by dinghy to where Mr. Thwaites surfaced, and they pulled Shelley into it. David performed CPR on Shelley for a short time, only a few minutes, and then instructed that CPR be discontinued because Shelley was dead. This is a decision which is against diving protocol, or CPR protocol in general. Typically, CPR is done until rescuers have no more energy left, or someone with higher qualifications takes over. David knew this. He had training as an EMT, and taught this protocol himself as a dive instructor. Upon returning to the Caribbean Soul, David prevented Mr. Thwaites from sending out a mayday as he didn't want everyone coming around. David then contacted the Virgin Island Search and Rescue Team. A Mr. Keith Royal responded, and on arrival he saw Shelley lying on her back. He offered to do CPR, but David refused the offer, saying he was a paramedic. He'd seen dead bodies before, and there was no need for CPR. Mr. Royal then transported the deceased to People's Hospital, where she was pronounced dead. The day following the incident, the vice president of the BVI Dive Operations, who is a certified scuba diver, who also has training in the repair and inspection of scuba gear, dove the site of the twin wrecks in order to retrieve a camera lost by Mr. Thwaites during his rescue of Shelley. While there, he located Shelley's fin, mask, and snorkel. He noted the condition of the mask and that the snorkel's mouthpiece was detached and missing. I was confused by this, because I never dove with a snorkel attached to my mask. At least not scuba dove with a snorkel attached to my mask. I would breathe out of a mouthpiece attached to my diving tank. Ben and Rebecca taught me that some people will have a snorkel that they'll use while at the surface, and only use their regulator or mouthpiece for when they begin their dive. Shelley's slate that she took notes on was never recovered. They secured her equipment, and in keeping with protocol, 
they kept the equipment isolated until proper authorities could take possession of it. They examined Shelley's equipment the same day and found that it was in good working order. They checked the air pressure in the tank and the regulators and found that they were breathable. That the buoyancy compensator, which would normally inflate or deflate to help rise or to lift or lower her body in the water, was working correctly. The air was good quality and was highly operational. I'm sure her equipment was top of the line as well as David's, since they owned a dive shop. It wasn't cheap, easily breakable material. Shelley was in good health at the time of her death, and as I said earlier, she was a very experienced diver. In fact, she had dove over 354 times. There was no evidence that she had any medical condition which could have attributed to her drowning in the diving conditions that were present at the time of her death. The only person in the immediate vicinity of her at the time she died was David. According to court documents, David displayed strange behavior after his wife's death, and while still in the British Virgin Islands, two days after Shelley's death, David went to the dive business and asked the owner to get rid of her equipment. After her autopsy was conducted, he once again went to the dive shop and once again told the owner to dispose of her dive gear. That's a really strange request, and it's especially strange that it was made twice. Let's talk a little bit about the evidence found on the ocean floor. One of Shelley's fins was sticking out of the sand, straight up and down with the heel part facing up towards the surface of the water. This can only happen if force is applied. Many fins float, so there's a chance her fin could have floated to the surface if it wasn't pressed into the sand. If her fins were sinkers, it wouldn't land with enough force to stick straight up and down. Instead, it would lay flat on the ocean floor. This means force was applied. And this could happen in two ways that I could think of. Someone could have intentionally dug the fin into the sand. David tried to explain this away by saying that Shelley had a sore spot on her heel and that perhaps she took the fin off herself and buried it in the sand to come back to later. If you've ever tried to swim with one fin on before, you'd know it's not easy to do, and I personally would never choose to do it intentionally. It feels really awkward. Instead, I'd remove both fins, knowing it would be a pretty slow go when trying to move forward. I don't know this for a fact either, but I'm also not alone in thinking that most divers wear booties and then put their fins on over their booties. The booties do two things. They help prevent blisters or soreness on the heels and they warm the feet. I would assume that considering all the nice dive gear they owned, Shelley was likely wearing booties. But I certainly don't know that for sure and assumptions are like termites in a case like this. Back to that standing fin. The only other way I can think of that a fin would get stuck in the sand like that would be if she was trying to get to the surface, meaning she was swimming along the ocean floor and something happened which made her try to change position and rise upwards. She'd attempt to bring her feet underneath her, which would cause her to kick the sand. Imagine her trying to get into a kneeling position to kick off the ocean floor. Is it possible that she panicked for some reason and tried to kick to the surface? The answer to that question is yes, but the question is why. Authorities in the British Virgin Islands believe that David swam over the top of her. 
He then shut off the air to her tanks and held her down until she drowned. During the struggle, she tried to kick off the ground, jamming her fin into the sand and knocking it off. Her mask somehow got broken and ripped from her face. The pin holding the strap to her mask would break. This would take a lot of force. Her breathing apparatus, or regulator, would have done her no good because there was no air coming out of it, and in her last moments, her instincts kicked in. She spit out her regulator and took in lungfuls of cool salt water. After she drowned, David allegedly turned her air back on and then swam away from her body. He wasted some time before surfacing far away from where she would be found. He would claim he got cold and tired, and that's why he surfaced. The prosecution believed that David's motive for murder was greed. They alleged that he knew he would get none of her money if they divorced. Instead, she would have to die. His second motive was that he was having an affair and wanted to be free of his marriage to pursue the other woman. That woman's name was Mary Bassler. In a letter to Mary, dated October 1998, five months prior to Shelley's death, David wrote that he struggled with how they could be together without hurting each other or other people. In the letter, he said, A lot of me would like to come hustle you up and leave the country for good to enjoy life elsewhere. I'm waiting to be with you, but I can't change this mess I've gotten into anytime soon. In the letter, he called Bassler a soulmate. Mary was a chiropractor who met David while taking lessons through his dive shop. She invited him to her home in 1998, and during that visit, David told her that he and his wife were having problems. Mary Bassler said that David didn't explain the nature of those difficulties, but she suggested that if he was unhappy, he should either fix his marriage or get divorced. He kissed her that night, which Mary said surprised her because she didn't know that he was attracted to her. I call bullshit on that. Mary Bassler testified that she was not intimate with David that night, but they continued their affair for months. She sent a condolence letter to David when he returned from Tortola, and that soon after, he called her to meet at a restaurant. She said she didn't remember him discussing any details of Shelley's death with her. I'm sorry, what? Is she trying to say she cared so little about the fact that David's wife died that she didn't even ask him how he was feeling or how it happened? Give me a break. She testified in court, hesitatingly and stammeringly, that she began to see David intimately in May 1999, only two months after Shelley's death, and that they ended the affair in late 2000. The Tortolan jury heard testimony about David being a two-timer, romancing his chiropractor girlfriend on the side. They'd hear about Shelley's damaged mask, broken snorkel, and the flipper stuck in the sand. It was all damning evidence of a violent underwater confrontation. They'd hear the testimony of Shelley's substantial net worth and the prenuptial agreement that would have prevented him from sharing her considerable assets in the event of a divorce. They would also find out that her will named David as the primary beneficiary. David's defense was lacking. He tried to convince the jury that Shelley had drank too much the night before and had panicked in the water. Just a little side note on that. When I interviewed Ben and Rebecca, Ben mentioned that Shelley did drink, but very rarely, and if she did, she'd have a glass or two of wine at a social setting. But to his and his family's knowledge, 
She wasn't a heavy drinker, and there was no evidence of this in the trial. Based on this information, a panel of three judges within the Eastern Caribbean Supreme Court would only take three hours to find David guilty of what authorities described as a near-perfect crime. He was ordered to serve at least 25 years of a mandatory sentence. He began serving his term in a Tortola prison. In a turn of events, David is alive and well today, and he's free. His verdict was overturned in 2011. Another panel of three judges found problems with the jury's instructions read by a judge during the 2009 trial. It was a technicality. They declined to order a new trial because of concerns about recalling defense with witnesses, given the amount of time that had passed since Shelley's death. David said he felt elated as he walked away with his daughter, who had long maintained her father's innocence. He said he planned to breathe some free air, go for a walk, go home, pick up the pieces, and go on with his life. Something Shelley could never do. These are all things Shelley's parents wish she could do again. Part of David's going on with his life was figuring out his finances and his children trying to figure out theirs. Back in Rhode Island, another dispute was growing. Who should inherit Shelley's estate? In anticipation of her marriage, Shelley had made a new will, which made David the sole beneficiary of her estate, as long as he survived her by thirty days. His children, Jennifer and Jeremy, would inherit if David died before Shelley. David was considered a slayer, meaning he killed her, so he couldn't inherit. His kids thought they would have a right to her estate. The Tyre family disagreed, and the court decided that none of the surviving Swain family would inherit anything. I hope and pray that Shelley's death was not physically painful. In my heart, I believe it wasn't, and I'll tell you why. I was in the process of earning my scuba certification in a quarry in Indiana and was paired with an instructor. We were practicing a rescue in which I had to save my instructor. He had use of my regulator, meaning my air, while I pulled him towards the surface. I was pulling as hard and as quickly as I could while holding my breath, the effort that I was using to propel our bodies upwards depleted my oxygen much more quickly than if I had been still. I kicked off a fin near the surface just when I thought I was about ready to breathe, and it slowed my ascent. I had to breathe in, and I sucked in freezing cold, fresh water instead of air. In my case, I can honestly say it didn't hurt. That is, until I broke the surface a second later and started coughing it all out. I mean, I took a full, what felt like a full lungful. Because of that experience, I personally believe that drowning wouldn't be a physically painful way to go. I'm convinced that had I taken another breath or two of water, I would have fainted, and that would have been it for me. Don't get me wrong, it would be absolutely terrifying mentally and emotionally, and I definitely don't recommend it, but physically, it didn't hurt. Sadly, Shelley's death, which many believe was a murder, may have led to a copycat killing in 2003. Tina Watson and her newlywed husband of only 11 days, David Gabriel Watson, often called Gabe Watson, were on their honeymoon. They were diving the Great Barrier Reef off the coast of Australia. 
In this case, Tina wasn't an experienced diver. There were no witnesses or DNA evidence in either case. The Queensland police alleged that Watson turned off his wife's air supply and locked her in a bear hug until she died, then turned her air back on and swam to the surface. His motive was also money, a $160,000 life insurance policy, and possibly spite because his wife had had a brief affair before she got married. Gabe told many inconsistent stories. None matched the account of the only eyewitness who didn't actually see the murder, but watched Gabe's rise to the surface. He was initially charged with murder, but Gabe's charge was amended when he was offered a deal. Ultimately, he took the deal and pled guilty to manslaughter. He served just 18 months in prison. I think I'll cover that story sometime in the future. So what do you think about this case? Ben and Rebecca, who I interviewed, have no doubt in their minds that David was guilty of murder. They believe that most of the people who knew this case and live in Jamestown would agree with them, and I tend to as well. I wish I could have shared my recording with them, but it really wasn't good enough quality to put on the podcast. I've got to work on a better way to record phone conversations. I'd really like to thank Ben and Rebecca for taking the time out of their day to let me interview them. If you're inclined, check out their YouTube channel, Major Pain Sailing in Scuba. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. If you like what you heard today, please give this podcast a five-star rating and a nice review, or maybe share it with a friend. If you'd like to go a step further and donate to Twisted Travel and True Crime, there are links in the show description that will allow you to do so. You can do it either on a monthly basis or a one-time donation. Every little bit helps, whether it's recommending the podcast or contributing financially. It really just makes things easier, makes the logistics easier, gives me more time to keep creating these podcasts. I'd also like to thank some of the wonderful listeners who have taken the time to give a review. So a huge thank you to Long 26 who says, one of my faves, Love her voice. It's very soft and soothing. She speaks very clearly and tells the story really well. She will put in her own silly remarks with good taste. Definitely recommend this podcast. And she gave me five stars. Thank you so much, everyone who takes the time to do that. It really, truly means so much to me. And to all of you listeners out there, I wish you fair winds and following seas and safe travels of all kinds. Take care of yourselves.